Tony Gilroy jetted into London this month for a special BAFTA screenwriter lecture series. Issuing the allure of his hotel breakfast buffet, the Oscar-nominated screenwriter and director of Michael Clayton and Bourne Legacy headed down to the Empire Studio for a special chat with us about the art of screenwriting and his career in movies. During his 40 minutes on the podcast, he gave chapter and verse on his route into the craft, the future of the Bourne franchise, his own experiences directing Bourne Legacy, and his occasionally tricky relationship with Matt Damon, as well as a fascinating soup-to-nuts insight into penning Michael Clayton's Oscar-nominated screenplay. Be warned, though, there are Clayton spoilers about five minutes worth near the 20-minute mark, so if you haven't seen it, do the dodging thing there, and then go and see it. It's great. And with that, it's over to Tony Gilroy. Enjoy. We are very pleased to be joined on the Empire Podcast by Tony Gilroy, the writer of The Bourne franchise, director of films like Duplicity, Michael Clayton, and obviously most recently, Bourne Legacy. And you're over in town at the moment for a lecture which you gave last night for the BFI and BAFTA. It's a screenwriter's lecture predominantly, so presumably you leave your director's hat behind and talk purely about the, the mechanics and the engineering of, of the screenplay. How did it go? It was fun. It was... It's, uh it makes you nervous. Most writers, you n- I've never given a speech before. Most writers never give a, sp- you know, you do a lot of Q and A's, which are very easy answering questions, but to get up and sort of have a 20 minute manifesto about something is a little bit daunting. You've never given a speech before. Not even a, I've a given like a presentation speech at a charity thing. And I gave a speech at the director's guild. Uh, I was nominated for a director's guild award and I gave a speech predominantly about Sidney Pollack, who was very ill at the time, but that was the only two times I've ever given a speech. Right. I was going to say the BAFTA, BAFTA and BFI. That sounds like a pretty. That sounds like a serious audience. So some, some. I don't know. You know better than I. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it, it was, it was very warm. It was, it was great. It was, it was really well done. I guess people, a lot of people must must say to you, you know, I'm working on a screenplay. What are your tips? Um, and where do you start? And 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 if you want to get it made, what what's the <laughs> Those are very common, yeah, I know very different questions. Yeah. But. Well, let's. I mean, where do you start? For instance, I think you. St- I mean, you start with the idea. What's uh, what's the movie about? I think for 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 aspiring screenwriters and people that want to get started, I think the idea is, and I think even for established screenwriters, the idea is ninety percent of of what you want to be spending your time on. It's it's chasing down a, a, a very well-executed version of a movie that has no chance of getting made or mm. is a wrong idea or is which uh, a story that 17 other people are probably working on or is impossibly expensive to make. Is Those are all, why waste your time? Yeah. Um, I think that finding the right idea, as long as, it, as long as that doesn't turn into a, a procrastination is, is is probably the best use of your time in the beginning. How do you avoid procrastination? Needing money. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a fear where it just gets so... It, it, there comes a point where it's just more painful to do... It's more painful uh, not to work than it is to finally get to work. You have yeah. to reach that balance point. Are you someone that springs out of bed and runs to his laptop, puts a coffee on and gets going? Or Absolutely. do you have to... In a, sprit, in a field of, of, of lilacs and... Uh, oh. And, and, yeah, no, exactly. It's so idyllic. I, uh, my main thing now, I used to be... When I was much younger, I was very, you know, very punch the clock. And, 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 and now all I'd want to do is I want to be there. I... I the, I want the feeling of wanting to go to my desk. So if it's at 4.30 in the morning and everybody's still asleep and I get up and I want to be at my desk, I'll go there. Um, you know, it, the, uh, I'll go anytime I want to be there. 
you know yeah. does that make sense it's, it's, it does make sense yeah because there's so much time you don't want to be there but yeah. you really want to be there God I really want to be there I really want to work on that there was so much last night in the speech and and watching the other speakers before there's so much about the you know the agony of of everything and it, it really is good <laughs> and I think that the reason I think that the reason that these speeches are tough is for the writers is because you get up and they want to know your process and what's your secret method and I think everybody's very nervous about having a secret method or saying this is my process because it's failed us so many times mm. but I think it's probably true of every novelist and every painter and every composer um, I, I think that the, the slight difference is that when a screenwriter finishes you don't have this beautiful painting or the symphony that you created you have this sort of really parched you know, 120 page document that you spent all your time trying to get stuff out of and it's only you know now it has to be put in the crypt and 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 you know electricity has to be uh, uh, jolted through it to, and it has to go to the next stage you're not done it's only you're only at the beginning so I think there's some extra bit of agony about the screenwriting process but I don't know writing is uh, writing is creating is hard over time you, you there's just uh, it's a bipolar life and there's times when it's really great and really going well and times where it's just not happening you want the good times to roll I've got to be honest I was looking for more angst in your answer you know I, a lot of angst like, what are you supposed to do I mean it, it sounds very whiny you're a very oh no. very successful screenwriter and you've you've you've, you've profited well by uh, by the whole thing it really it get it gets a little uh, it, it gets a little annoying I think if if um, uh, if 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 if, if I whine yeah of course yeah. well it's not really gracious it's not becoming you don't no. think is that something your dad because your dad was obviously a successful screenwriter in his own right wasn't he is that something that he he kind of inured in you from an early age well you know what you see you you watch a writer's life I mean that's the one we were talking about that last night after the the one thing I it's not like you learn screenwriting at home and and even though my, my brother's a screenwriter my other brother's an editor you don't learn it at home but you learn what um, you learn living with someone who's living who's living by their wits you know, so mm. you grow up. That's what you know. I mean, you make stuff up, you get food. You make stuff up, you get clothes. You make stuff up, I and mean, it's about using that and all the disappointments and the tempo of it all s makes sense to you as a child. It's you, you know, your father works at home, and you know, huge disappointments and huge, you know, triumphs and lots and lots of money and no money and you know, back and forth. So you learn that all makes sense to you. So you don't have to learn that part of. No. The life and uh, and the the mechanics of a writer's life are something that I've understood since prenatally. I would say <laughs> prenatally, probably <laughs> in the womb. I mean, just judging by the fact that you and two of your brothers have have gone into Hollywood and gone into the movie making business, you must have had a certain kind of. It wasn't a house, though. I mean, it, we we didn't have. What did you have? You had the we we grew up in a really small town in upstate New York. There was the Monroe Theater with the hole in the screen where someone had thrown a rock that they didn't fix for 20 years and and we had million dollar movie at three channels on TV it really wasn't um wasn't a, a a library of film um I really my my film viewing the uh, the extensive part of my when I moved away from home probably 16 17 I moved to Boston and, and I lived there for about five years and that's when I started seeing everything I mean that's when I would see two three movies a day and really yeah and there was a great rep theater um, what kind course, of and there were all these rep theaters at that point in time because it was all pre-video and pre-everything so the Orson Welles and the Harvard Square Theater and the Brattle Street Theater there were all those great rep houses that show all these classic films and you get to see everything and I was a musician then which gave me lots of free time to uh, to make up double features in the daytime. And so I just really, there, there was about five or six years, ten years really, where I saw almost e absolutely everything. Everything. Yeah. 
And what what films kind of lasted longest for you? Uh, I uh, man, I hate these questions. Though you know, I mean, but it's all it's the films from you know. I'm probably most uh, well versed on the films from 1967 to. In 1982, I'd say, yeah. something like that, you know. But that was, I mean, a formative year for you, not just in terms of films, but for your life, I imagine, a period <laughs> when, you know, there was all of this pre-Watergate, post-Watergate Vietnam, yeah. Nixon, etc. Yeah. And a lot of that filters into your filmography, I, I would say. I mean, Somewhat, I hope so, yeah. Uh, would you agree that, you know, that those... Um, you know that was a golden era for the sort of conspiracy thriller, and I don't even just think for that. I just think in general that was um, and, and I, I think what's great about that period of film was you had the absolute best people, right? You had all the great technicians, all the great, great actors, and 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 great cinematographers. You had all these the people who were really masters of their craft. Un, un, uh, cut free from the studio system and cut free from everything. Cut free from a lot of different things and doing a lot of drugs and freaking out and everything being free and wild. All of a sudden, all these ambiguous stories and you know people people began looking in, at, at cinema as a, as a much different adventure. But but instead of uh, everybody learning together, you had all these uh, master craftsmen working on these really wild pieces for 15, 10, 15 years in there. And, and, and that combination of mad skill and mad <laughs> material is what I think gave us so many of those great films. Now you have a situation where, you know, you have a, a sort of a, a really separate system. You have all the, the high-end uh, craftspeople, you know, working on gigantic the mega, the $300 million movies, and then you have this sort of, you know, the independent sort of ghetto. So you have a lot of people where, a lot of films that they could really benefit from having technical, are, are crippled by the fact that they're, they can't be executed well enough, or they have the fourth actor that they want instead of the first actor that they want, or the 17th actor. They can't get the best talent, they can't get the best DP, they can't get the best, you know what I'm saying? There's a, there's a, a, a separateness that was not, those things were integrated for 15 years, which was really fascinating. I yeah, think, you know. Yeah, I do. I mean, but that period and people like Gordon Willis and directors yeah. like, you know, uh, oh Coppola God. and Scorsese coming through, and and think what is analogous to that now, and it's hard to it's hard to see. I mean, look at the movie. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, uh, Paper Moon. I mean, look at it, the technical aspects of Paper Moon or the level of craftsmanship. If, if if you spend time in Hollywood with the people who really with the camera departments and sound departments and and, and music department. The level of generational knowledge and care, and I mean, it's almost like going to Milan, where you know the, they've been sewing the buttons on a certain way. I mean, there's really a—I uh, uh, don't know how long that will last, but it, it's—it it still exists now, and it's—it's it's, um, when that's put in service of something enigmatic and something <laughs> radical, it's really exciting, and those people are excited. But it just as an opportunity doesn't really occur that much, and it's occurring less and less now. <laughs> you, you, <laughs> well, listen, we, yeah, we're, no, no, no. we're a movie website, so we are eternally excited and optimistic about the next release. You don't have a film out this year, but... I do not, no. It's weird to be coming out and... I, I'm not, I got nothing here? to sell, man. I got doing? nothing well, to sell. I'm just nice. here for the speech. Yeah. You can come. We always say come by any time. You no, literally no, have here. come by any time. Any time. We appreciate that very much. Um, we are... It is movies and it is TV as well, but but we, you know, the, the passion for movies, you see a film called mm -hmm. like Gravity, which has blown us all away uh, recently. So we haven't lost that love, obviously, but at the same time, a lot of great stuff is happening on television. And... Breaking Bad, I know that you're keen not to know what happened in today's final episode at this point. Mm -hmm. I don't know, so it's okay. Um, you're moving in that direction as well now. You've got a project on yep. um, for 
For Gaumont. Yeah, my for brother Go- and I just we just announced it a couple of days ago. For Gaumont, exactly. About yeah. it's a French executioner from the thirties. Yeah, no, it's about a. It's. I mean, this is. Uh, Danny had this idea for uh, my brother Dan had this idea to try to do it as a movie for years. There's a, a real character um, called Anatole de Blier. He was the sort of last uh, Lord High Executioner for the uh, for the for the French Republic. He he died in 1937. They continue executing people after that, but he I think he's responsible for about 367 people that he executes. His father executed 397 people, and his wife was the great great granddaughter of Sanson, who had taken Marie Antoinette's head. And there's this whole tribal society, sort of untouchable group of ever diminishing. There were there were many, you know, every, when there were lots of executions, there were many of them spread regionally. Over time, it consolidates down into one crew that Anatole de Blier runs, and they perform all the executions uh, on the guillotine all the way through uh, through 1937. So it's if the show runs, it would run from 1931 until 19. We pick it up in 1931, so it's a uh, a show about him and his crew and his life. I mean, it's uh, it's so out there. It's so the treatment that we gave them is so um, such a stretch and so ambitious. We were really. It, it, it's what's great about television. They were like, we really want to do this thing. It'd be very almost impossible. In fact, it, virtually impossible to take that out in Hollywood and try to have any traction with it whatsoever. But on uh, on the second screen, all of this madness now lives. It's fantastic. It's a bit of a departure for you, clearly, because it's... I mean, you've done period before, but this is, like, proper period. I don't, um, yeah, I get. I don't know. Have I really... Uh, I'll tell you what's unusual about it. I've never done anything that had re- any any pinnings of real. I've never done... I've turned down 1,500 true-life stories in the in the past... This is enough unhinged, and there's just enough written about him. And the guy ran his life. He was so secretive about his life, and that he, he's such an enigmatic character um, that it seemed that there was a lot of room to move without without uh, violating the, the the historical trust. But I've always been very leery. That that to me is the big uh, the, the, the big change for me is not that it's period, but that I'm doing something about a real person. Right. Um, I'm so born isn't that isn't it's it not a real it, it thing. No, I hate to break that. Oh, to you. <laughs> Dude, it's not real. <laughs> I thought it was a documentary. That's exciting, but it's also a little depressing because the sorts of films that you have made, you know, the Michael Clayton's and the Duplicities, they, they tend to be in that. You know, it's been talked about that kind of mid mid range budget Hollywood movies that are disappearing. And and Steven Soderbergh, we've already kind of he's already right. kind of abandoned ship for the for the small screen and for other interests. Yeah, he's shooting now. Yeah, it, I know. Yeah, is that is that something that's driven look, you in that direction? You want to go where you look. I, it, I wish I root constantly for the big big smart movie. You know, I just I root for them like crazy um i think that the middle movies are really gonna get crushed i think toronto and telluride this year i think people there was a resurgence people got really excited and there's a bunch of films coming out uh, you know in the next in the next month that are all very interesting we'll see who makes money we'll see who survives we'll see if that but i think it's an ever diminishing piece it's just inevitable and when you have this just you know, it's sort of like the Prague Spring on TV right now. I mean, and it's and it's. I mean, every single person that I know that um, wants to do something really interesting is going. Why am I banging my head? You know, yeah, against the four or five studios in town, <clears throat> or banging my head going out trying to raise independent money so I can not pay my crew anything. I mean, I'm producing a movie for my brother now. We start shooting in a couple of weeks in L.A. A nine million dollar movie. 
which is it's called Nightcrawler yeah. uh, with Jake Gyllenhaal we start shooting actually we start shooting in a week that kind of movie will continue to exist because there's money around for that but people can't live on that I mean we're, we're, we're basically crushing a crew and paying everybody nothing they get to stay at home and, and, and it's a short period of time people need to at some point the television thing will get saturated I'm assuming and at some point you know a big smart movie will come along that will hopefully break break through and, and, and start elevating these big movies. We need Matrix to come out now, I think. That's my new theory. That we really? Need. Yeah, I think if Matrix came out this year, everybody would go, oh my God, you can make an art movie and a big movie at the same time. Yeah. You know, when I made Legacy, I mean, Legacy for me was like, oh, maybe this is my ticket, you know, uh, if this really breaks out in a huge way. Um, that was my bid for Big Smart. It it paid the rent and it did fine and they're going to make another one and all the rest of it, but it didn't, it didn't, it didn't, crush it in the way that gave me a golden ticket to do whatever I wanted to do. I didn't get a Chris Nolan ticket off of it. You know what I mean? <laughs> Seriously, and that's what has to happen so that you can play so that you can play with big entertainment because that's what all they want right now. There aren't many Chris Nolan golden tickets out no, there. No, really. there should be more, but there need to be more. I mean why why doesn't why doesn't Soderbergh have a, a, a golden ticket, you know? Why 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 at this point uh, it's a good question. I mean, I, I was lucky enough to spend a couple of hours talking to him just before. Right. Um, well, bef that's why he's left. I mean, he said that you know, Candelabra. He couldn't, you know, traffic it around Hollywood. No one wanted to know. Not even with his you man know, from Uncle. I mean, for crying out loud, the way the you know. Mm. Uh, and Moneyball was a, you know a similar his you know he yeah I don't know the whole story on that that was seems more complicated that that was more I think that was more of a, a creative I think that literally was creative clash of cultures and differences but. Look, they want they want people that they can control. He he said it had got a, a considerably worse since when he since he'd started out that the notes from the studios were getting more and more kind of invasive, I guess. And did you has that been your experience as well? I mean, would a film like Michael Clayton be harder to make now than it was then, even Definitely. in that short time? Definitely. I mean, uh, Clayton the, the 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 formula for Clayton might still work, but you know, the formula for Clayton was based on the fact that George Clooney at that point could ask for $20 million to be in a movie, and our budget was less than that, and he was doing the movie for free, right? So that's the thing. So Actually for free? Basically, yeah. I mean, he ended up making plenty of money on the back end of it, but he did the movie for nothing, essentially, for expenses, uh, and, and took his percentage. But the question now is, when you look at the foreign sales number for actors, their movie stars don't really mean that much anymore. I mean, they're, who means... Who really who brings you that number where they waive their salary? So that's a, that's a diminishing formula as well. Um, I think Clayton could probably get off, but it would be a much tougher sell. Yeah, well, maybe Gravity with Sandra Bullock and Michael Clayton. Sorry, Michael Clayton, George, George, George Clooney, Clooney, Michael Clayton, um, a lawyer in space would be would a be lawyer in space. I think I think if everybody who was making Gravity knew what they were getting into in the beginning of it, it mm. might have been more difficult to get made. Really? Wow. Well, don't you think? Of everything I've read, I haven't seen it. You've seen it, but it's, it seems like everybody sort of tiptoed into like, and all of a sudden they were in so deep, they were like, oh my God, what are we, what are we into? Yeah. But that wasn't, was it that expensive to make? I'm not sure. Uh, no, perhaps not. No, possibly not. But I mean, if you're in a room and you're, you know, you're just in a room for two years and then you're in a, a, a suite doing, I don't know. Well, Stoderbergh's point was that marketing is 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 out of hand, is out of control. That you know, you're spending thirty million dollars marketing a film is what kills those mid-budget films. Would you go along with that? That's probably true. I mean, Clayton was. 
I don't think I don't know whether Warner Brothers ended up making money on Clayton because the Clayton story was they didn't really like us that much and they had to release us because it was George and then all of a sudden they turned around and they didn't have an Academy film for that year and all of a sudden they looked and like oh my god here we are and all of a sudden we became a you know our our our, our there was a you know flowers at our at our door all of a sudden and and they spent so much money and I didn't really care because I didn't I, I was I never made a penny off that movie and I never was going to so it didn't really matter to me I was pleased for them to the, the, but the spend from Toronto through the academy nonsense is epic what they do and <laughs> And uh, so we were the great beneficiaries of 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 their of that madness. Did you get one of those big variety ads? Oh like, my God! Tony oh, Gilroy, you're the man. Uh, dude, I have a basement full of. I mean, the promotional materials and the amount of stuff that goes into one of these Academy campaigns. It's it's absolutely absurd. And it goes. And we're in it now. I mean, you just. And I'm an Academy. You're just bombarded with invitations and bombarded with promotional materials, and it's just. Uh, it's a stunning, um, it's a stunning assault of um, nonsense. <laughs> but this was a movie you're saying that the studio never had much faith in, and suddenly you're up for. Well, it. they bought it. it. They didn't make it. They right. bought it. For, they bought it. it. Was a negative pickup. Clayton, mm. they, they they purchased it. Yeah, but they didn't know. They didn't like it. They took it because George. They took it because George was in it, and they kind of had to. And you know. Yeah. Grudgingly. And was it seven or eight Oscar nominations later? Yeah. They seven. liked it. Seven. seven. No, seven. No, seven. <laughs> no, but we, you know, we, um, but they never would have made no. it. No. Let's talk about Born for a moment because there's a lot of, a lot of noise around that franchise and, and I hope you can maybe cut through it a little bit. You're, you're laughing in a way that suggests that this is not your favorite know. topic of know. conversation. Well, go ahead. But I mean, they are making another one. Are you, are you, are you involved? Are you, do you want to be involved in, in that as a writer or as a director? Do you have a, had conversations? Oh no, that's old news. I was out, I left, last uh, almost a year ago like last November we parted company on that so I haven't been involved since for a year through you do weren't interested in going forward with it or it's just no uh, we we talked about I had some obligation to to, to uh, you know some contractual obligation to continue and mm. do something and did that and we just we just it wasn't we're we're through. <laughs> it, it's been fifteen years. Yeah, yeah. And 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 I wasn't I wasn't really. I think everybody's very unsure about what everybody else wanted to do. So it just it, it seemed like it had run its course for everybody. So if there's another one, there's no there's no Tony Gilroy, there's no Paul Greengrass, probably no Matt Damon. That's Jeremy Renner is involved, yeah, but right. but we're looking you're looking for an entire fusion of like creative DNA into it now. I guess I'm assuming so. The um, I don't. I'm, I really don't know that much about it. I know they've hired a writer. I'm really hopeful. I I I, uh, I have a, I have several reasons why it's very important to me that they do very well. I'm rooting for them to do very well. I tried. You know, what's mm. my story? I tried very uh, rigorously to be a preservationist when I came back mm. in. You know, and that was because there was a lot of wacky ideas that were being thrown around. Um, really? And I tried. Yeah. Can you and, share? No. You know, replace Matt Damon or do a prequel or all these crazy ideas that were just sort of. I think the the first thing I wanted to do was be a preservationist and make sure that there was a situation where, if we did this film, that that there'd be multiple ways to go and that the door would be open for Matt to come back. And you and Matt had some ruptures. I don't know how much of those were created by the by the media or or whatever, but it, everything is harmonious with you now. 
I guess I don't really. I mean, we haven't. The less I say about that, the better. Mm, fair enough. I don't know. But the film, I mean, it came out because you, you had a very much a your own aesthetic for that for that movie, and it was a slightly kind of, different, yeah. slightly different yeah. looking and feeling picture from the other Bourne films, which I think is probably what it needed to a certain extent because it it had wrapped itself up a little bit by that. By yeah, that it would have been really it would have been really shabby to come in there and shake the camera around and try to like I don't know. We did what you know we 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 just came in and said we're making a bigger movie. You know, we're sort of saying we're it's a much bigger canvas and it's a much bigger story and we're saying we're blowing out the landscape of what already been there. Let's like blow everything out and and um you know, it has so many more locations and so many more and we also had a lot of heavy lifting to do. I mean, we had a lot of responsibilities that you don't normally have on uh on a sequel. We have to introduce all new characters. We have to bring I mean the the, the first act of that movie is just from a writing point of view, is just nothing but heavy lifting of trying to trying to get everybody up to speed on how we interact with the other film and all new people and it's a it's a pretty the bar was pretty high uh, of what we had to do was that the, the 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 biggest challenge that you faced in your screenwriting career to have to get all of that stuff in and, and you know avoid the exposition heavy elements well on the converse i never had done any television or anything episodic when it came down to do born supremacy after the first one when uh doing the second born film all of a sudden when when it came time to do that and finally after figured out what the movie was about when it came time to write it i'd never been so relieved in my life i didn't have to like it was like oh my god i don't have to make the world i don't have to like reinvent the whole thing i don't have to explain everything i don't have to, everybody knows it was i mean screenwriters spend a huge amount of our time trying to mask the educational part of our script which is basically getting you up to speed on what is going on and who these people are and mm. to not have to do that is 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 very liberating to have to on on legacy it was a much harder not only do i have to start over but i have to integrate it with what's happened before and i have to you know for all the people that are going to be you know on our back about the fact that we're changing horses you have to try to i mean it's just it was a very a very complicated bit of writing at the beginning of that it must feel like a little bit like swimming with your clothes on when you start a project like that and you have all of that stuff hanging over you. You know what? You, well, you, it ended up being fun. We ended up just, I mean, in the end, it's sort of, you want everything like you want every script to sort of feel inevitable. When you strip all that stuff away, you don't want to feel effort. You want to feel like it's, yeah. but it was, but underneath it's like, oh man, there's a lot of stuff to do here. Yeah. Well, let's talk about from the beginning of one film to the end of another one. And I really love, I mean, I love Michael Clayton. I really love the ending of that movie. I, I love the, the final showdown has a kind of, it's almost like a wild western thing between you know these two characters. Uh, if you haven't seen Michael Clayton, now might be a good time to issue a spoiler warning. But has this lovely kind of recurrence of of, of the Shiva, the god of death. You know, a line that's that's uttered mm-hmm. earlier in the movie. I mean, w- tell me about the difference between writing a sequence, you know, that's dialogue heavy, some of those earlier exchanges, with with a scene where, which is another scene from the film that really sticks to my mind, which is where um, character gets assassinated effectively, and there's no dialogue right. at all. How, how is, is that challenging to write that kind of that kind of dialogue-free scene? And we were talking about this last night when you giving the lecture. You should be directing if you're writing a film. There isn't one film I've ever written that I haven't directed. I mean, even the very first silly things that I first. I, you have to see your movie. You know, you have to be reporting on a movie that you're seeing. You're not just putting words on paper and saying, oh, yeah. you have to really see it. And I think as time's gone on, 
I've gotten a more conscious of that. And when you become a director, pretty much everything I'm writing now, I'm I'm I'm, I'm already shooting in a way. And if there isn't a visual, exciting visual component to it, it be- makes the scene really difficult to do. Even if it's two people in a room, if I'm writing this scene between the two, is I'm trying to find something at, at my desk that makes this mm. interesting to me visually. So writing the the scene where Tom Wilkinson gets killed is, I mean, that's a that was a, that was a gas to do. I knew what it was going to be, and it was like. It's going to be so much fun to, not just to write, but if we ever get a chance to make this, it's going to be so much fun to do. And it was fun to do. Um, it's a ferocious scene, I have to say. It's just a gas to do something. Those kind of projects where you just sort of, you, you pick the guys and, and you give them their task and you say, okay, in, in, in a week I want to come back and you have to be able to, here's the set, here's a, here's a bag of, here's a human doll that weighs exactly what Tom weighs and I'm going to come back in five days and see where you're at. You got to be able to do it in 90 seconds. You know, you come back and they're down to 140 seconds. You go, guys, you got 90 seconds. I'm coming back in three days. And why? And so it's so great to have those kinds of I'm videotaping it and making special projects. I don't know. It's um, you know, the difference between that and writing a big dialogue scene. I don't. It's all, it's all making stuff. It's all yeah, movie making. I don't know. It's all. All that stuff's exciting. It has an unusual and 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 almost, I guess, in an, in the nicest possible way, slightly old-fashioned ending, which ends with with George Clooney in the back of a cab, right. and you, you the camera stays on him for right. quite a long time, right. you know, which I guess is kind of a low-key sort of fade out to the film when you've had all of this kind of all of this build-up of tension, and then it's like it's slightly, and you're left with a guy who's you know, who, well, he really is. Where's alone, he going? He is, yeah. yeah um, was that written? I mean, how was that? How was that in the script? Did you just? No, we didn't have the ending. I had everything but the ending, and um, it's it really made people nervous on the show because everything else that I had was so tucked away and so prepped and everything like that. So that everyone was used to on the show, and we were we were really a low low-budget movie for what we were doing in, in New York City. So everyone was very nervous as we were in the second, third week. What are we going to do with the ending? Because everything else was... And I kept trying a couple things, and they were lame, and he has to leave the hotel, and it came up... And, and you know what? I, I, I saw the... Uh, uh, you know, the Haneke film, The P- Piano Teacher. Yes. I, I don't know why, and I happen to see... I don't, you don't watch many films while you're shooting. We must have had a couple of days off, and for some reason I was watching, and I watched The Piano Teacher, and the ending of The Piano Teacher is just... I love that movie. Yeah. It's just so... The ending of that, I saw her walk away, you know, she's been stabbed, and she sort of walks away, and it, it, it doesn't really follow her that much, but it's like, it's all with her, and it's like, oh, wow, she'd just really be with George. And, and um, I said, God, what about this cab thing? And we tried it... We tried it about three or four different days, different times, um, and failed doing it, but it was like, wow, this is really going to work. And finally, we, we honed it down. Um, it just it just felt right from the very first time we, we played with it. But it wasn't in the, it wasn't in the script. It was yeah. the one thing that really wasn't in there. Wow. Must be no, I mean, it must be nerve-wracking to think I'm not quite sure how this is going to... Well, I knew he's going to leave her and where where does he go when he leaves the hotel? Mm. You know, he has the big conference. We knew he's going to win and do the whole thing. He goes down the escalator. Where's he going to go? I don't know. Is he, is it a long, you know, is the shot of him, you know, what do we try? The shot of him walking on the street with the masses of people up Sixth Avenue. It's like, oh man, I've seen that, you know. (laughs) It, right, tire. You just wow, everybody's doing it's that. It's a lovely bit of acting with his eyes, and it reminded me of, of Harold Shand at the end of um, at the end of the Long Good Friday. I don't know. Uh, totally, you, exactly. Where, there's a whole bunch of there's a whole bunch yeah. of uh, uh, you know the Graduate has one, and 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 I once said to Mike Nichols, Mike Nichols took me out for lunch because he. He he saw Michael Clayton and he said, "I I have to meet you and take you out for lunch." And I said, "Do I? I you know I completely I know the Graduate it's a rip off of the Gra." He goes, "I ripped off Greta Garbo in uh, oh what's the movie? Um, 
Oh, she's at the. I'm going to blow it. He goes. I stole it from. From there, he goes. Everybody's done that. He goes. It's. 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 I'll tell you what George does. I'll tell you this one. One. While we're shooting that, I'm in a police car, in in the car in front, and I have a little monitor, and I sort of fuzzy, and it's going in and out, and we're riding around trying to get places where people aren't going to have cell phones and shoot pictures, and cabs aren't honking, and so we're doing these long takes, and we get to the end, and we get back to the hotel. And they have to reset the camera, and all these people are standing around. And I'm going back to him in the car, roll down the window. I said, look, I said, I don't know what you're doing, but it's great. It's really great. What are you doing? And he goes, I'm just running the movie through in my head. He goes, I just played the movie through my head. Wow. And that's, you know, uh, that's just really good, smart acting. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Go George Clooney. Go George Clooney. Um, When Sam Mendes was off, for a while off of you know Bond post Skyfall and then he came back on we, we did a we did a piece speculating about other directors who might be good for it or might fancy it or might be you know potentially linked with it your name came up amongst them did you there are rumours that you had had some conversations with Barbara Broccoli and, and the guys Eon about Bond at some point is that true? I've never spoken to them never spoken to them no. would you have any interest longer term in being I guess maybe second American I think it would be to, to direct Bond I think everyone would want to have a conversation about <laughs> Yeah, why not? Why not? It depends on, you know, I know, uh, yeah, definitely. Who wouldn't want to have that conversation? We're Good. all, come on, we're all, you know, you, you at least take it. Sure, I would love to have the conversation. I don't know what it means. I mean, it, it, there's a level of control, I think. It's it's tough that I, I think that's the sort of stopper on everything is, is, is you really have to give up control. I don't think you're really in control of, of making that film. I don't, mm. I don't think anybody's really in control, but they are. I mean, and, and they've done a very good job of of protecting their, you know, the greatest movie brand there's ever been, I guess. So, but who wouldn't want to have that conversation? Sure. And you could see them hiring a born veteran for a bond. It would be so, wouldn't that be? No. <laughs> Bringing no, no, it no, together. No. They have it together. They don't need me. Can you see them making a born film without the word born in the title? I think they have to, don't they? I mean, if they, if if they, I don't see you can come back with a Jeremy Rachel movie now and have born in the title. Of all the, the the disappointment, the biggest disappointment about the whole experience was the level that anybody perceiving that we were being cynical while we were making the film because it was so everything about it was so uncynical. Uh, we were really trying to be preserve the integrity of everything that had happened before and like really build up the mythology of what had been happened before and really have everything work really deeply for people that were really deep fans and mm. not try to be cynical about Piggy and to be you know we had to use Born in the Title for that one I mean we had to um, and the and the idea that anybody would think we were being cynical by doing that was a little bit disappointing but I, I don't think I'm not sure what they're going to do but I would think you'd have to you, you don't want to go to that well twice Haters will hate Tony it's true. It's true. <laughs> it's, it's true. It's true. They're on the internet it's often. It's true. If you see the Ben Affleck Batman, uh, oh my for god! All. Wow, that was astonishing. People are intense about these things. They care. I guess it's passion. I guess it's something. It's too much free time. <laughs> Let's talk about the Devil's Advocate just briefly because I have to let you go in a moment. But um, you weren't the only screenwriter on that. But no. I'm hoping that you wrote the the famous Al Pacino. Oh, I wrote all Al's speeches. Monologue. All of them, yeah. About oh, yeah. about God being the absentee landlord. Oh, yeah, which all is, that stuff. Which is crunching, crunching stuff. Um, did that come easily? Yeah, that's the easiest the easiest stuff to write. And but, did you write it for Al? Oh, my God, yeah. I wrote it for Al. I, it was endless sessions with Al. There's probably another 40 pounds of it that didn't make it into the movie because it was just, it's so easy to write. that People think what, I don't know what people think is difficult, but like, I was actually saying this last night because someone asked a question about it. 
like the the Tom Wilkinson's speeches and Michael Clayton and 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 Al Pacino's arias all the way through Devil's Advocate. That stuff, I can just sit. That's easy. You can just sit down and sort of spin that by the yard. You just get a hook on it and just go at it. That is always been fun. It's like turning on a faucet. What's really hard is you know the motel room scene between Jeremy Renner and Rachel Weisz in Legacy. For me, is so much more difficult and so much more to be that precise and be that small and have it mean that much. The other stuff was just God. It was so it was too easy to do. And then I was with Al a lot because Taylor was starting the movie and Al was not starting when we started. And all of a sudden there was a whole thing in the beginning. I was with Al alone for two weeks, ten days before we started. And then we just kept accumulating stuff. It's like, oh my God, too much, too much, too much. But it was very easy to write and and so much fun to like. Yeah. I mean, the last, I saw that. I haven't seen it in a long time. I saw the last half an hour of it a couple months ago. It's the it's the most insane ending of a of a of a large movie. <laughs> when he starts singing, it happened in Monterey, and it's. I can't believe we got away with all that stuff. But anyway, do you remember that? Do you remember that monologue? Look, but don't touch. Oh yeah, touch but don't. Yeah, taste but don't swallow. Yeah, yeah. Why does? Yeah, he gives us. But it's almost. I like... was in a club in London. I was in a club in London one night at three o'clock in the morning. Some people drop, and I'm in a club and with these people, and I've sort of lost the people I'm with. And over this house music, the guy is playing, starts running Al's monologue. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm looking around for someone to share with. There's nobody there to share. I'm like, that, this, that's great. But no. That's excellent. I don't know. What was the tune? Was it like a, it's a house? I a don't house. Know. Some ma- yeah, it was, this was the age of massive attack or something. Like uh, that. Um, and just lastly, I guess, um, the, 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 <laughs> you were kind of a big voice in the writer's strike, but at the same time, you were trying to adapt State of Play, which was almost like you know going the other way from television to the to the, right, to the from right, small to the big right. screen. Russell Crowe was talking about how how difficult it is to do that to condense six hours of quality BBC drama right. into into two hours of you know big screen entertainment. Right. And then you had the writer's strike, which I think changed your cost well I was on I, I was on the part before the writer strike it was for Brad Pitt I worked on the Brad Pitt version of it with with uh, Kevin McDonald who I just thought was great uh, I, I Kevin I think Kevin really had a uh, there was a much much better movie there and I don't think Kevin was well served by anything that happened on that film I think there was uh, the strike and the people that were it, it just he he really got Kevin really got screwed, I think, all the way around on that movie. But I worked on the first, I worked pre-strike on the Brad Pitt part of it, and then I think during the strike is when Russell came on, and then and then Billy Ray came on after. He was a very good writer, really, really mm. great, um, and and it and it became something else. But um, did Russell? Does Russell Crowe obviously has the clout to to change the direction of the thing? I did a movie with him. We did Proof of Life together, so I knew him well from that. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, he's a you know, uh, he's a movie star with opinions, and 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 some of them are very good, um, and some of them are not. And I don't really know what happened on, on 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 that whole thing. I just know that I really adored Kevin McDonald. I really loved working on the script with him, and I was really proud of the script that we had done. And it was really a shame. Um, you know, there was a bunch of heartbreaks along the way, and I just it, w- watching Kevin do his first big American movie that should have really uh, 
he should have really been well protected all the way around. It didn't seem like there was a lot of protection for him. Yeah, yeah. Well, you had Ed, Ed Norton, who was replaced by Ben Affleck as well, I think, in that. Um, I didn't even. Yeah, I didn't I even believe know that. so. I think Ed Norton was was linked too, and then I don't think there was quite as much of a flaw about Ben Affleck's casting in that as there has been in, in 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 you know Batman potentially. But yeah, these no. things. I mean, I guess the writer strike was a was a challenging time all round. And, and yeah, very much so. Very intense. Are the, are the scars still there a little bit in Hollywood? Do you think? Oh God, yeah. I think yeah. I think it opened wide the sort of studio. I think it gave. I think it gave. <laughs> You know, an extra uh, jolt to the war on talent that you feel in the in the from the executives in Hollywood, and I think that it changed a lot of different. It certainly changed some of the economics in Hollywood, and it gave everybody an excuse to to behave in in different ways. I think that I think in the end, though, <laughs> um, as television rises, and this will be my send off here. I mean, as television rises and as writers assume power. I don't, try to find a model in history where writers in power hasn't worked out really well. Yeah. Writers in power is a really good system. Writers are very they're 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 generally more rational and benevolent and and forward thinking and responsible. I think when uh, I think as television goes and, and 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 writers assume more power just naturally by the speed and 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 the way that stuff is structured, um, I think that's the big breakthrough. Well, let's hope so. Yes, um, you have. Monsieur de Paris coming up, and um, that's gonna, you're going to be shooting the pilot for that, I believe. I will be direct. I have to. We have to. We have a. We have like a, a 40 page treatment, and I have to turn that into a script, and we have to go find out what we're going to do. And cat, we're a little bit away, but yes, I will be directing. The so you're pilot, not directing it this week. Not but, this week. No, I'm producing <laughs> Nightcrawler and trying to finish a script. Yeah, and, you're yeah. a busy man. Well, listen, it's it's very kind of you to come in and talk to us, despite not having a movie. And, and we're looking. No, it's we're cool not to be in and selling something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe you can leave us with one film, things you don't have your own movie apart from your brothers that you're excited about this year that you're looking forward to seeing. I'm really looking forward to seeing her. I, th- I think that uh, I, I don't think Spike Jones has made anything less than a brilliant movie. I think all three films that he made have just been absolute masterpieces. I'm more excited about seeing her. Did you see the trailer for it? No, I haven't seen it. Oh, it's just it's. I don't know it. it um, and I just think if someone throws three just absolute perfect strikes, I'm really fascinated with that, and I'm fascinated with what he's doing. So that's that's the movie I'm uh, most excited about seeing. Perfect. Yeah. Brilliant. Tony, thank you so much thank for you coming so much, and talking Jeff. to us.